You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? So I started a prop firm in 1981, uh, Factor Trading Company Incorporated. Continue to operate Factor to this day. Mm-hmm. It's a prop firm. It trades its own capital or my own capital. Uh, we don't trade outside money. There was a time that I did from, I think it was 1984 through 1992, I believe, 1993. I traded money for a firm called Commodities Corp out of Princeton, New Jersey, which was a great experience because Commodity Corp was a cutting-edge trading operation that from Commodities Corp really emerged some of the greats, uh, great names in trading. Uh, right. Bruce Koltner, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, that's Coda. Mm-hmm. And some of the the best traders in the world came out of the Commodity Corp environment. So and that's been my life. I trade, and uh, it's tough to explain to people you meet for the first time when they ask you what you do. It's I basically tell them I, you know, I run errands for my wife. So, but that's you know that's my life. I continue to trade this day. I'm in my late sixties. I don't ever see the day that I won't be a trader. I, mean, I love trading. I love what I do. I mean, there are days that I don't like the results. But I love the process. I love the challenge. Uh, you know, I like the competition with myself because that's really where the competition is. So uh, that's basically a background, I guess. Well, thank you, Peter. Let, let's start off by discussing about how overrated the sharp ratio is. Oh gosh, I could. You know, we could talk about that for the rest of your program. Uh, <laughs> I hate the sharp ratio. I despise the sharp ratio. I think it's worthless. I think it's a gimmick that. Allocators, particularly in the equity markets, use to cover their butts. I don't think it's a good measure of trading talent. It, it basically penalizes upside volatility. I want upside volatility. I live on upside volatility. Mm. It's what I desire to have is upside volatility. Well, and I think that the managed futures industry has made a big mistake by buying into the idea that they have to provide such metrics as as the sharp ratio, I think it's uh, it's harmed it's harmed the industry. Volatility's good, and, you know, and with upside to volatility, you're going to have downside volatility. So, you know, I, I far prefer other metrics, and it's other metrics that we use to measure ourselves. We like gain to pain. Uh, of course, anybody who's a trader has kind of got. MAR stuck around their neck for the rest of their lives, for good or for bad. And I like Kelmar. And so those are some of the metrics we look at. Uh, I don't really care much for win-loss ratio, although I know what mine is. I know it historically what it's been, but over any short period of time, it can be all over the map. You know, average win to average loss and dollar value. I mean, I know what those are, but I, I I don't think they're they're measure and you know in the end it's what you do on a bottom line and how much volatility you have to go through to get there really the things I care about as a trader I know what my kind of goal is each year for a rate of return some years we don't get there some years we do much better since 1981 we've had three losing years and that comes with the territory and uh, and, and so I think that you got to live 
with the good through the bad. But, you know, going into each year, I'm hoping I can do 40%. But I realized that a great Kelmar on a rolling basis is going to be two. I mean, guys that have lifetime Kelmars of two or MARs of two are all-star. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, chances are over a long period of time, I'm aiming at a Kelmar of two, which means that if I do 40%, I'm going to have a 20% peak to valley drawdown, probably two each year. And so we've got to live through that kind of volatility and make it out the other side. So, In terms of your factor trading plan, which you discuss about, can you explain that to the audience I mean, plan almost sounds like it's an organized deal. I mean, I mean, I'm a discretionary trader. I'm not a systematic trader. Right. And so I think the word plan tends to go a little bit better with uh, the idea of being a systematic trainer than being a discretionary trader. But, you know, I am, uh, I'm a Richard W. Schaubacher devotee and Richard W. W. Schaubacher originated principles of classical charting which were then picked up by McGee and Edwards uh, in their book in 1948. So I'm, I'm a classical chartist. Uh, I look for head and shoulders patterns. I look for right angle triangles. I look for stuff like that. Uh, I tend to look for patterns on a weekly chart. I don't look at hourly charts. I don't look at interday charts. I don't want to be a day trader unless I'm taking a loss. You know, I, I want to find very clear chart patterns of 10 to 12 weeks in duration, and sometimes it can end up being one, two, three-year patterns. And uh, I take positions based on successful breakouts and try to use good risk management and uh, generally will risk uh, somewhere in the area of 80 to 108 basis points on a trade. I don't pyramid, you know, I get in and hang on and try to white knuckle it. Peter, uh, in terms of your approach, do you believe that your methodology can be taught to others? Yes and no. You know, people people make the argument is trading an art is trading a science. In my view, and it's in my own opinion, people are free to disagree. I, I think I look at myself as a craftsman, not an artist, not a scientist. But it's a craftsman. It's like somebody who does fine work with wood. It's somebody that's meticulous as a dentist, you know. And so I try to approach trading as a craftsman. And, you know, you could get 10 different chartists to look at a chart and have 15 different opinions as to what it is. So I have my own way to look at charts. And other people may not see things I do. I try to be real creative. I mean, I, I try to see things that the markets don't even have a clue of what's coming down the road. And oftentimes because of that, I'm early. Sometimes I'm four, five, six months early. And, and so I'm looking for some big things to happen and, and to lock in to some big ideas and then, and then wait for confirmation. Peter, uh, when you say that you try to see things that are not happening, can you provide some details about that methodology of seeing things yeah. that aren't going to happen? I'll give you two examples, crude oil. You know, I was bearish crude oil for a year and a half. Based uh, on what? A big symmetrical triangle on the weekly chart. 
Okay. Huge symmetrical triangle. But, you know, it took forever to form. I mean, the thing just went on and on and on and on and on and on. And, and uh, you know, anybody that was trying to trade the thing during the process probably would have gotten chopped up because it just continued to coil. It coiled for like three years, I think. And, uh, you know, we finally broke out of the coil back when crude oil prices were around 85 to 90 cents. Well, I, you know, for a year, I was talking about $50 crude, you know, and I was, you know, people couldn't see it. I mean, nobody saw it. And you had to be able to be willing to look at a really long-term chart to be able to say, yeah, crude can go to 50 bucks, can go to 45 And so I think that what's happened to the markets, when I started out, is you're either a floor trader operating and living off the bid-offer spread, or you're trading off the floor as a position trader. And in this age of modern technology, people have a shorter and shorter time frame of markets. They get they lose the forest from the trees. You know, they're looking at the next five-point move in the S&Ps or something like that, where I want to have a much longer-term perspective of markets. Now, I may not hold a position during the enti- during the entirety of a move in the markets, but I basically want to be operating with a perspective that is beyond the realm or understanding of the market. You know, I, I turned very bullish on the S&Ps back in March of 2013 with a target of 2372. That continues to be my target. How do you derive that target Well, in that uh, case? The, yeah, well, I mean, in the case of the S&Ps, it's just based on the fact that we had a, we had a big rectangle that originated at the 1999 high uh, or 2000 high. And so this big, broad, multiple-year pattern, you know, it was a pattern that lasted for 13 years. It went on and on and on. And so that's what drives me. I, I operate on a concept which I... I, I term strong opinions weakly held, is I want a strong opinion on the markets. But if I'm a wrong, I want that opinion to be weakly held. Uh, I don't want to get biased. In, in uh, terms of the strong opinion, opinion statement, in, in say, for example, math and science, right? Strong opinion can be a confirmed thesis following the scientific approach, right? And that can be confirmed and tested and retested and, and replicated. Uh, now, how yeah, can you, you maintain that magnitude stuff. of conviction in terms of your approach? Because say, say if you were to sit with a peer or colleague, is, is that possible? And, and how so. much of that is dogma then? I, yeah, I mean, in the first place, well, I believe in probability theory in some ways, mm-hmm. but I'm a Bayesian. I believe in Bayesian probability, and I think most great traders who are discretionary traders are Bayesian in their practice, whether they even know anything about what Bayesian probability theory is. They're Mm -hmm. Bayesians. And so I approach markets from the standpoint that if, if, well, I I think a case in point is uh, Japanese stock market. I've been, I've been looking for 2100 on the on the Nikkei since 
December of 2012. And so that's a big move. And it's a trade I may be in and out of several times because, you know, I want to use money management too. You know, I, I can only stand corrections to a certain degree before I blow out and take another look at it. But for me, it's it's like people who are, are have a strong opinion that silver must be at $50 are fools because mm-hmm. the market's not bearing out their theory. Right. And so you have to have uh, an opinion about a market. And I like to think in terms of possibilities, not probability. I am possibility driven. And so I don't think that strict probability theory can be applied to what I do. So I like to think of myself in terms of uh, I look at a market and I look at what's possible, not what's probable, and certainly not what's certain, but what's possible. And what formulates, in my opinion, what's possible tends to be weekly charts. And then I go down from there and basically place my trades off of daily charts and generally, as a futures trader, I want to be in trades that I can make somewhere between three to five thousand dollars a contract or more. That's kind of my sweet spot. You know, it's a trade that's twelve, sixteen, twenty weeks in duration on a pattern. You know, four full cents in the euro, something like that. Is that's the kind of trade I want to be involved in? One of the fascinating things I had a chance to look at, Peter, was basically. Well, two things actually. The, the overall concept of, of time and getting a little philosophical to, with you is that perhaps time is an illusion. And in, in science, they'll discuss about space and time in, in some sense. So that's, that's maybe a conversation for another day. But in, in terms of, and why it's so relevant to us is that it's the time frames of charts as well. And one of the experiences that I had was different indications based on different time frames. And especially if you start trying to observe patterns, for example, I'm assuming the higher time frame takes a greater precedence in terms of the thesis. And then you can like adjust your charts as you go down the time frames. But you know, there's going to be uh, instances in which there's going to be a mismatch based on, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. so, yep. so it's very interesting. I, I think, and what, what are my concerns sometimes about approach like that? Cause I've actually experienced a lot of this too, is time, a thesis should be almost time agnostic to some extent. And, and what are your thoughts on that as you switch time frames? See, say, for example, a head and shoulders pattern on one time frame, switch to a lower time frame and get an inverse head and shoulders. How do you address all of that? Oh, you know, that, that's a great question, Peter. For me, the, the trade I love is when I have tra- time frame confirmations is where you get a monthly pattern that is aimed in one direction. And then you get a weekly pattern comes up and lines up with it. And then you get the daily pattern, which confirms it as well. And so because it's tough taking a position based on the breakout of a weekly or monthly chart. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. just too much. Yeah, there's too much room in it. There's too much risk in it. Right. And so I want to be able to see something that triggers a daily chart pattern uh, off of the weekly chart. And more often than that, that will occur. And so... You know, I, here's a case in point may help you. 
is I, I'm a bear on the euro dollar. I don't care about Greece exiting or not exiting. I, I could care less. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a chartist. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Greece can come or go, as far as I'm concerned. It just doesn't matter. But you have you, you have a three and a half year triangle, descending triangle in the euro dollar, that for me counts down to ninety one cents. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's driving me. And I've I've already traded the euro dollar several times from the short side. And so basically, I am pointed in a direction based on the weekly chart. Now, what I'm looking for then is triggers launch points based on the daily chart. We had one today. Mm. Uh, I was flat this morning and I'm short now because the euro dollars gave me a sell signal based on uh, like a five-week sell signal based on the daily charts today. And so I'll, I'll take a position on the daily charts. What I have found as a chartist is that uh, a lot of people will say charts don't work. And you know what? I'd say I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that statement. I can live with that statement because when you look at chart patterns on a week on a daily on a daily chart or an interday chart, more often than not, the patterns will fail and then they will morph into something else. It, it's the concept which I call chart morphology. A chart will morph. A chart will morph. A chart will morph. You think it's this? It's not that. It becomes something different. And if you stay unbiased enough, all of a sudden you look and say, aha, I got you. I know what this market's going to do. And, you know, it may take you two, three, four approaches, attempts to finally get position, but you finally get position and something happens. And you kind of put it all together and it's, for me, it's a mosaic and it's a little bit here and a little bit there. And all of a sudden the, the picture is clear. I found it extremely interesting that the euro dollar broke out on the first trading day of January because there is in currency something called a January effect. Right. And it's very common for a for the euro and the dollar index to make its annual high or annual low in January. And so all of a sudden we break out of a pattern on the first day of trading in January and turn around in the next week, we we create a daily and weekly down gap. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, hey, there, someone spilled money all over the table. It's there for me to pick up. And, and so, you know, I have the weekly chart. I have the daily chart. I have the January effect. I have a breakout. Uh, I have a breakout when no one is trading because it happens on New Year's Eve. We gap down the next Monday. And then what I find is, You'll, you'll enter periods on the daily chart of uncertainty during the course of a move, and more often than not, uncertainty will be resolved in the direction of the dominant trend. Peter, uh, in terms of confirmation bias or potential confirmation bias, what states to you that you must use these time frames? Because I'd imagine, hypothetically, if instead of, say, using a weekly chart, if you adjusted it to, say, like a bi-weekly chart, you know, I know it sounds like a weird number to use, but yeah. in theory, one can do that. Or instead yeah, yeah, of using you can a, do that. Absolutely. Yeah, a daily chart, in, you use, I don't know, a bi-daily chart, for example, uh, hypothetically. You could use a two-day chart. You could use a 10-day chart. Exactly, could, exactly. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, you, you can use all different time frames. But the reality is that when you look at a big enough pattern, the same pattern is going to appear across time frimes. Hopefully, right, to some extent. Uh, more often than not, they will. I mean, 
if they don't, it's kind of a yellow flag for me. It may be a trade that instead of risking 80, 90, 100 basis points, I risk 30 basis points. Okay. Uh, and so you adjust uncertainty uh, with, with your trade size, with your risk level. Uh, but more often than not, the pattern that I'm looking at on a daily chart will appear on a weekly chart, almost always. I mean, it's rare that it does not. I, I know in terms of charting as well, there's different kinds of charts, right? You, you could have like a logarithmic chart, for example. W- what do you think about the differences that are, are you just using a plain? I, I, I use just an arithmetic scale. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that to me is kind of like an argue, you know, discussion about kissing your sister. I mean, that, that's about how excited I get about discussions of semi-log arithmetic mm-hmm, i mean mm-hmm. arithmetic works for me because i don't stay in trades that long mm-hmm. you know i think semi-log charts are great if you're looking at a hundred year chart of the dow or interest rates or something like that it's a good way to gain some understanding and perspective of a market but you know when my time frame for a trade is that if i'm in a trade for two months to three months it's a long time you know there's there's no reason for me not just to simply use an arithmetic uh uh scale and and what is the um, i guess bar of choice are you like a candlestick guy are you a bar chart guy a line chart guy no i use them all why uh, is that you know, i i will i will i i will use i'm basically a bar chart guy I mean, because that's how I started. Me too. Uh, but for me, there is some value in candlestick charts. I don't know a doji from a boji. I mean, I don't know what all this stuff is. Mm-hmm. But I do know this, that when a market breaks out and it's for real, you should have a wide-bodied bar. And so I pay attention to that. I mean, I don't pay attention to all the little Japanese this, that, and another thing. But I love when a market breaks out and you can convert, switch your chart over to a candlestick chart and you see you had a big wide bar breakout. Isn't you know, that also seen support. from a line bar though? Like, I mean, it's not going to be thick, but it's just going to be long, basically. It's going to be long. Yeah. It's going to be long. And I, I look at, I'll tell you why I look at closing price charts. I don't like trading the markets in day. I like getting in in markets on the close or when they reopen. I want to see how market closes. I don't care about, to me, the closing price is the most important price of the day. The Friday close is the most important price of the week. And so, yeah, for me, I, you know, looking at a closing price chart is, is significant. Has that changed a little bit more? All of the crud. I mean, ha- where a market closes is the only thing that's really important. Right. Has that changed a little bit, though, with the globalization of, of um, I guess, futures and markets where, you know, after hours is starting to have a more pronounced effect to, to some yeah, extent? I can live without looking at markets during the night. I mean, for stuff like yen, I think it's important because, you know, you're trading in Asia. That's, you know, that's that's where the market trades. Right. But I don't especially like to be trading uh in the middle of the night, I, I, you know, I don't want to wake, I don't care where markets are. Right. You know, for me, it's where they close in the U.S. You know, that's, that's what I care about. I, you know, you can drive yourself crazy worrying about where markets are at two in the morning. And I really don't care about that. How, how do you address 
big gap ups or gap downs then based on you say the US close and then you wake up the next morning well i mean you know hey uh, there are times when you get pinched i mean but i i think over the long term having stops in live stops in intraday you're going to lose more money by getting whipped around by the high frequency trading operations then you will the occasional time where a market really gaps against you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I want to be conscious of when markets might gap against you. I mean, just recently, there was a lot of blood spilt by people who were short Swiss long euros. Right. In my opinion, it was their own fault. That was a stupid trade. That was an idiotic trade that people were doing. They were picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And, you know, they got run over as a result of it. So, you know, I want to be aware of maybe some possible things that might happen that could really give the market a good gap. But, you know, it happens. I mean, you know, I, I think my worst trade was a eight or 900 point gap against me in crude oil a number of years ago. So, I mean, they happen. I mean, it hurts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you pick yourself off and brush off the dust and get back in the game. Um, you mentioned algorithmic trading or high frequency trading. What what kind of factor uh, has that had? I mean, you, you you've huge. been around for quite some huge, time. Huge, huge. I mean, you know, it's occupying in in some cases fifty, sixty, seventy percent of daily volume. You know, there are very intelligent programs. I mean, our markets have changed. I, I'll I'll look at a market right now, and I usually cover the spread when I enter an order. I don't horse around if I want to get. I don't trade that much. I don't trade. You know, I only put on eight to ten positions a month. Me too. You know. Yep. So, you know, if I want to get in a market, I'm not going to horse around, I'll just bite at the market. I mean, if it's a big order, I'll work it a little bit. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to care about always buying at the bid. I'll just cover the spread. But but I'll be looking at a market and I'll see I'll see a market, an example right now. Uh, I'll just look at a market right now where you got, let's see, where's the S&P? You know, S&P right now is... Uh, is twenty one oh four and a quarter bid twenty one oh four and a half offered. Okay, if I put in an order to buy at twenty one oh four and a half, the offer would disappear, or at least part of it would. Uh, and that's your high frequency trading guys, and they know how the orders are stacked. If there's an order that's been placed on the exchange, they know how it's stacked. Mm-hmm. And especially in the middle of the night, those algorithms become very smart at knowing how they can exert the least amount of energy. To big to get the biggest wash out of a market, and you know I want to stay out of their way, and, and that's why I just assume not have orders working, stop orders that is working during the session. I'll put alerts in. I mean, I, I, my phone beeps all the time. You know, I get text messages all the time because I put alerts in. But it gives me an opportunity to know, then to look at the market and say, well, you know, do I need to do something or is this just high frequency algo guys playing around? I mean, we've always had a washout of stops. It's now being done by the algo and uh, high frequency guys. It used to be done by the locals. By the floor brokers, you know they knew how to do it. I don't think they knew how to do it as well as the computers do today. But you know, you get uh, you get a lot of volatility, and so uh, I like to look at a chart. If you look at a chart, a bar chart, let's say, and you put a one-day moving average on a bar chart, make it a thick line, 
Well, then look at a chart because basically then anything over and above that one-day closing line is noise, and I don't want to be caught up in noise. So, so you're kind of interested in some kind of like weighted average? Well, I'm interested in where markets going to close. I, I mean, that for me is important, especially on a Friday, especially going into a three-day weekend, especially mm-hmm. into a three-day weekend. Because if you think about it, guys that are trading during the day, they're going to be flat. And so guys that are holding positions overnight have to margin up. They have to margin up bigger. means they have a bigger commitment to their trade. And that's especially true, let's say, a market drives into a new high on a Thursday coming into a three-day weekend. Well, that tells me that you've got buyers who have some good intent behind them and deep pockets that they're willing to take a market into a three-day weekend with decisive new highs, that's a market that I want to be long, especially if it's coming out of a pattern. Are, are you going to try to analyze some of the bids and asks in addition to what you see on your bar chart, for example? No, no, make no attempt to do that. Okay. I, I'm a big fan, actually, of um, using services like a kind of like market auction theory to get a daily tally on some of these figures just to get some kind of indication on interest of, you know, hitting bids or lifting offers to some extent. Yeah. No, I I mean, I see it. I think, I think intuitively I know what's going on. I think when I'm hat, when it happens, I kind of recognize something that's happening, but I don't systematically go about trying to analyze it because it's really off my radar screen. You know, it's not pertinent to the way that I trade. Right, right, right. Are, are you a big fan of using ranges or opening ranges, Peter? Well, I look at the open. I mean, okay. so that's in the range, but uh, no, I don't I don't I don't drill down. I don't drill down that 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 high. I will tell you in a sense that I will because uh, from time to time I will use real range charts. Mm-hmm. Where I where where I'm only plotting the hide the open to the close, and mm-hmm. I'm getting rid of the spindles, right? And I'm taking a look at a market. I think sometimes a market provides you its fruit when you can look at real range charts, but that's not always. I mean, but I will. I mean, that's a chart that I will from time to time look at. Well, this has been a pretty interesting uh, conversation about charts. What would you say are some of the biggest anomalies or inefficiencies in in analyzing markets or what you've been able to, what would you consider as low-hanging fruit, for example? I know we covered some of that, but in, in your opinion, what would be considered low-hanging fruit? Well, I guess I'm not, help me understand the question. What do you think are the most biggest anomalies that, allowed you to capture significant profits to some extent uh, based on your trading? Well, I, I mean, I don't know if they're anomalies as such. I mean, I, I just think markets trend. I, I, I You know, the, what they taught 15 years ago at the University of Chicago, that market prices always were right, is, is a fool's, fool's game. It was always interested in being in Chicago is, Guys at the University of Chicago were random walk guys, and guys two miles away were making their living because random walk didn't work. You know, it was a nice contrast, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that I'm a believer that 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 oftentimes prices are not the markets are not priced correctly. 
Mm. I think that's particularly true of, I think it's less true of some markets. I think the Dow stocks are probably priced, priced pretty well. Mm. But as you move to the NASDAQ stocks, I think the price efficient, they're not as efficiently priced and therefore you have trend opportunities. You mean like the less liquidity? Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much, Peter, for this uh, conversation. It's probably been the most trading-oriented conversation, which makes sense because this is called the Big Trade Series. So that I think the audience will take a lot away from this. Yeah. Well, you bet, Peter, and, and best to you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 